Hey, how you doing? I'm Steve Folland. Welcome to another one. Thanks for joining me. This episode of Being Freelance is supported by FreeAgent, the online accounting software that makes self-assessment and VAT easy. They've been making tax digital for years. To claim your one-month free trial, visit freeagent.com slash beingfreelance. But first, let's find out what it's like being freelance for designer Tatiana Mack. I realize that that's the genesis of what makes the best work for me, the most inspired work, is first focusing on protecting my own mental and physical health. I'm not a believer in that idea of forcing yourself to do things when you aren't inspired to, so I very much seize the opportunities as they arise. Words matter. I consciously choose independent because I was sick of having the conversation of like, oh, you're doing freelance for now, but what would you like to really be doing? Whereas when I feel like I tell people that I'm independent, either they intrinsically understand or they can have a conversation with them about what being an independent designer means. Yeah, so there is Tatiana, this week's guest, um, one of many that you will find at beingfreelance.com or wherever you get your podcast. Make sure you've hit subscribe. If you enjoy what you hear in the next, oh, I know, 40 minutes or so, please do consider leaving a review or sharing this, be it online or in person at a meetup. Basically, help spread the word that being freelance exists. We also have the community. If you've not joined us yet, you can find that at beingfreelance.com. Link through to that. There are videos, there's articles, my vlog where I document my own freelance journey. It'd be cool if you fancy checking that out. And if you are a freelance parent, don't forget, I also co-host the Doing It For The Kids podcast with Frankie from the Doing It For The Kids community, which is well worth joining if you're a freelance parent. So yes, if you like podcasts, you like freelancing and you have children, <laughs> I should have probably said and you like your children <laughs> that's not a prerequisite but you've got them right um <laughs> you can come and find the doing it for the kids podcast it would be great to see you there as well but let's for now concentrate on being freelance that's where we are and chat to this week's guest who is over in portland oregon over in the states and that is freelance designer tatiana mack hey tatiana hello thanks so much for joining us Excited to hear your story. How about we get cracking with that, actually? How about, as ever, we hear how you got started being freelance? Yes. Uh, so my freelance career started when I graduated from college. I actually studied something totally different. I studied uh, environmental science and math. And I graduated in 2008, which placed me in the American recession, effectively. And so looking at getting a master's or a PhD in soil science, say, didn't seem like a very financially feasible next step for me. And so, um, and math, I can't even start to begin to think about what careers my math major <laughs> would get me. But I did have this set of skills of design and I kind of gained those in a very unorthodox way. Um, my parents had owned a pre-press business when I was a child. And it's now an obsolete step. But at the time, it was a very manual process where you're taking film and you're using large format cameras to burn film onto plates. And that's how things effectively got laid out for the printing press. Now, of course, I think we 
those of us who work have worked in print modernly understand that that's all obsolete. But my dad basically worked through that transition and had to go back to school full time, leaving my mom to work multiple jobs to support our family. So I was 10 at the time. So they couldn't leave me at home alone for that long. So I just went to school with my dad. They set me up on a gumdrop iMac computer. And I basically learned, you know, destructive Photoshop, Corel Draw, Macromedia Freehand, basically all these programs that are now also obsolete. (laughs) But that's where I learned these skills. And so summers, I would work for them doing really boring typesetting jobs and continued that skill through college and high school where I worked on the newspaper staff and would lay out pages and design the newspaper. So I realized when I graduated that I needed to find money. So I emailed every single person I knew. So I went through my address book line by line and sent each person basically a a custom email asking them how they were doing, if they needed design services. And I ended up building this database of, of clients that ranged from belly dancers to postmodern jazz, Tom Waits uh, covers, really just an eclectic array of folks um, that I was creating lots of multimedia experiences for. So some websites, some print materials, um, some more experimental designs. Wow, what a start. That is so cool as well that you got to see the old way of laying stuff out basically from your parents and but he got to take you to to learn what came next i love that so you actually emailed everyone and so that's you got enough work from that to become freelance from the off after graduating yes yeah, so i started that when i graduated and throughout my career i've gone back to certain free full-time roles. But at one point I had built up a studio with a partner and we had five distributed employees across the world and we were building identities and brands across web and print, primarily for solopreneurs and small businesses. And so, yeah, running my own studio and having other people to pay and (laughs) account for was kind of the largest that that had become of what I had built myself. But yeah, on and off, I've definitely been working independently since I graduated in 2008. Okay, I feel like we need to dig into that whole partnership and building a studio. So, so at what point was that? What, what sort of year was that? So I had started the brand for it, it was called Adam Design. And the original partner that I had moved and went on to do other things. And so I continued on without him and then added another partner and she's very entrepreneurial and brought a whole host of skills that I didn't have. So we started doing the same thing I did. It was always the same strategy. She was very well connected in Boise, Idaho. So we effectively would just go after clients, find them. And then we started building out team members to create the design work and the content work. And how long did that last? Like, and how did you find it? So that lasted, my sense of time is really off, but I feel like we did that for about two years, I would say, or three years. And then ultimately at the end, I think I realized that there was so much of 
what I wanted to fulfill as an individual and that there were components of running a business proper that I didn't enjoy. And so I think that that's what made me realize that working independently is at the crux of what I wanted to do, that the parts of that I loved of owning a business and running a business were the parts that allowed me personal independence. Right, sure. What were the bits that you didn't like? I think the stress of other people's financial needs is really difficult to take on. And I really commend all of my previous employers for taking on that stress. I mean, I've definitely worked in places where people were sketchy about making payroll. And that's something that really gives me a lot of anxiety is having other people's livelihoods, which can be quite complex with children and health and et cetera, et cetera. To take that burden on is is one that I, I don't know how not to take on emotionally. <laughs> so uh, it's probably better for me not to. <laughs> yeah. So when you came out on the other side of that, how did you go about, well, I guess becoming that independent designer? Because the first time you needed work, you cold emailed everybody. Well, not cold. You you knew everybody and uh, you sent that custom email. But then you've transitioned into something very different. So what did it look like when you went back to being freelance that second time around? Yeah, so I built that business with my partner. We disbanded the business effectively. And then I went back to working full time at an agency for about four or five years. And that was a role where I was building a team. When I started, there were two designers. And when I ended, I was overseeing a creative team of 26 content strategists, designers, developers, copywriters. And the burnout of agency life is very real. I was working, you know, 60, 70 hour weeks regularly and realizing that I was quite distanced from design work itself and recognizing that I didn't really know or remember what it was that I loved about design. So I did what any (laughs) logical person would do, and I just quit everything. I quit my job. I quit my relationship. I quit my apartment lease. And I packed everything into storage, um, had a backpack, and traveled around Europe for a few months. (laughs) Yes! Oh, I love the film quality of this. This is great. When you sell the rights, I I can't wait to watch this. So what year are we talking about when you're suddenly backpacking around Europe? That was in the fall of 2017. So I left at the end of August or September. September I left and then traveled around through November. And did you work at all in that time or was it pure, I'm off to have fun traveling and seeing things? The first month was working on my own existential crisis, Um, (laughs) but then the reality of money set in, right? Like having to front money for an Airbnb and realizing, wow, my savings is getting quite low. So I did reach out to several folks who I knew would be amenable to working remotely for certain things and was able to tide myself over. But I effectively, I mean, I think people romanticize these types of things, but When I came back in November, it was out of sheer necessity. I had maxed out all of my credit cards, had zero money in every single bank account, like every single side, you know, like Venmo, Apple 
cash, all of those were completely depleted. And I was basically starting from uh, sea level again. Now, that sounds like a point where you might be tempted just to go and get another job in a company, right? (laughs) Yes, but an unfortunate or fortunate side circumstance, I guess, or revelation I had during my trip was that I didn't want to continue to work in environments where the sole mission of the company was to increase the triple bottom line and to sell things. That had been much of my career leading up to that existential, I call it the hard reset on my life. That's how it's been documented in my in my <laughs> memoir that's stewing in my head. But I realized I what I loved about design was its capacity to do so much, but to do so much good or to do so much harm. And so coming back, though I wanted the safety of a paycheck, I also had this like quality and and little alarm in the back of my mind that would go off when it's like, do you want to work there? Are you sure about what you're doing? (laughs) So that that made it challenging to find a full-time role that met that need. So what did you do? So what I did was I struck some compromises with myself and I said, okay, what if I find ways to continue to contract? So I've contracted at several agencies locally and then spent the free time that I'm able to to work on projects that ultimately feed into that mission. So a project that I'm going to work on forever because it's a big undertaking is this dictionary. Uh, It's called Self-Defined. And my hope in this dictionary is to create a dictionary that reflects the social landscape that we live in and allowing folks of marginalized communities to self-define themselves. Wow, no biggie. So, I mean, that sounds amazing. So this was a real point then, while you were off discovering Europe and discovering yourself, that you started to become the Tatiana Mack that I would see if I went to your website right now in 2019, where it says, Tatiana is an American designer who builds inclusive, accessible and ethical products with thoughtful practices. So you were like, okay, I'm going to take contracting jobs in agencies in order to be able to pay my rent. But actually, I'm not going to spend all my time on that. I want to start doing stuff with purpose. Exactly. Which is lovely. But how did you start to be able to get that work with purpose to be also the work that would pay the rent? Yeah, it's certainly tricky. And I think that it's finding that balance. I think I put a lot of pressure on myself which I feel is a generational burden is that we are told that we need to find what there's that Venn diagram about finding, you know, your purpose. And I don't remember the the full structure of it, but it basically tells you that you need to find the intersection of, of your purpose and what gives you meaning and, and what will pay you and value you. And I think that's a really lovely ideal to aspire to and, certainly a great way to position our personal narratives. But I also think that we can find fulfillment in individual and partial pieces. It's that same idea of, I think sometimes in a partner, we look to find someone who can fulfill us intellectually, romantically, as a companion. 
And that's putting a lot of burden on one person to be everything for you. In the same way, I think putting the burden of a career to be your financial stability, your ethical North Star, and to be the place where you find your friendships, that's a lot to ask. So I try to craft all of those things more piecemeal and to take off some of the burden on each of the jobs or or contracts that I take to be all of those things. So did you start, as with the dictionary, creating side projects to show the sort of things that you wanted to be creating? Absolutely. Was it just the dictionary or did you like how how did you go about showing, you know, like for example, in a portfolio, the sort of work that this new lease of life Tatiana wanted to be doing? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I also created a Skillshare class. So I recognized that accessibility was at that point something relatively new to me as a technical topic. So I wanted to challenge myself to create a beginner resource because I found that many of the resources that I read felt quite advanced. They were made presumptions about knowing some of the fundamental basics, which I think is a burden that our industry places on us is to speak from a point of technical expertise. So I created the Skillshare course and wrote the script and then taped it. I wanted to show, I guess, that you don't need to be an expert in order to have something to share about a new subject matter. And I wanted to take on that challenge, I guess, of of learning the material somewhat quickly, digesting it and figuring how to teach it to someone else. Mm -hmm. And then within your portfolio, were you showing like a mix of the agency type work or could you not show that because it was agency? Like how did you get to show your new self? Yeah, I think that an interesting component of portfolios is that uh, a lot of folks will put everything on their homepage and their homepage becomes a manifestation of their entire portfolios. Uh, I think that strategy works for a lot of folks. I see it working very well, for example, for folks that specialize in UX design and UX research, where the methodology and, and there's a lot of writing and to be shared. I think for me, because I'm so multidisciplinary, I want my portfolio to be reflective of the breadth of work I'm able to do. So I use it more as a tasting menu. And then when I go to interview or have a conversation with someone, I'll pull in-depth case studies that I'll walk them through. But I either like to have my work completely speak for itself in its live environment, or I like to be able to walk through my work. I don't necessarily, for me, like that middle ground where I'm partially explaining my work, if that makes sense. Hmm. And, and what have you done to get that work in front of the sort of people that you want to work with? The original strategy was the emails, but how are you being seen? Because it certainly feels like you're being seen. <laughs> so what did you set about doing? Well, thank you. That's very kind. I think not being seen is a it's something that I, I deal with a lot is that feeling of not being seen. So I appreciate that language. I think that I've taken a completely opposite approach to what I did, you know, in 2008. What I do now is I just put out the work and the words that I would like to create. And then I have people come to me. And that's certainly coming from a position of privilege that I have enough reach that that's an effective strategy. But 
that's definitely how I operate now is I don't apply to very many things, if any at all. And instead, I just create things and resources for people in an open source manner. And then eventually it gets in the hands of people that I want to work with. What is a big thing that works for you, like Twitter, for example, or how do you get it out there that people then come to find you? I think that the two biggest platforms for me right now that are very symbiotic are certainly Twitter and also speaking events. I think that each has its own limitations, which is complemented by the other. So I think Twitter, it's short form. What you get said can be taken out of context. There's certainly the whole problem of white supremacy being supported as an ideology by Twitter and its rampant problem with trolls, right? So there is certain limitations there. And I think it's it can be a way that you can connect with strangers, but sometimes it's not as human as having a conversation with someone face-to-face. A lot of the topics I speak about are as controversial as the ones I say on Twitter, right? But I think it's much harder for people to walk up to me and to my face to question me in the way that they can from the point of, of an anonymous avatar. Sure. How did you go about getting those first speaking gigs? I think I was just invited by folks who had seen my activism and my writing and they reached out to me. But actually, I think the first speaking event that was significant to me, this is a story I love to tell, was I went to an event called Epic and I spoke with, it's a a very small event and they focus on including design with, I would say, outdoor activity. And it's much more an emphasis on small community-based conversations like fireside chats than they are about big grand like presentations, you know, in ballrooms and such. And I spoke there about a very vulnerable topic, which is that I wrote a Twitter thread, it'll be a year in July, about microaggressions in Portland. And the Twitter thread went viral. It was retweeted like 5,000 times or something. And I garnered a lot of attention from that. And after that event, one of the attendees uh, was invited to speak somewhere. And he actually uh, recommended me in his stead. And that kind of started, I would say, a trajectory of a lot of speaking events that followed. That once I had that first major speaking event under my belt, I felt like I caught a lot of attention by sharing out my deck and and by the recommendations that ensued from the folks that saw that talk. I, I like to tell that story because it was a really simple gesture that I don't remember. I think he couldn't make the event or or whatnot. But the fact that he recommended me to speak uh, really did kind of change <laughs> my life in a lot of ways. Like I'm looking right now at my 2019 speaking calendar and it's pretty wild like I think I'll be speaking every single month after this through November and that includes internationally as well yes I'm very excited I'll be speaking in Berlin Amsterdam Helsinki Barcelona so yeah so cool (laughs) and that came from speaking at that epic event so is that epic currents Yes, yes, Epicurrence. Dan Petty, isn't it? 
Yes, Dan Petty. That's him. Yeah. Okay. Amazing looking events that I've seen from afar online, but they're quite intimate. Yeah, they're super intimate and it's hard, right? Like I think that there's a lot of criticism in the design community about these events because they are so much different than your average event production. The the images that you see aren't of conference stages. It's of people like snowboarding. And on ours, we went to Yosemite and we we hiked up Half Dome. So it's a much different type of event. And I think the controversy comes from that fact, right? That it's different from what happens. And I think that it was great for me to be able to attend to share a different voice than the voices that are typically amplified at events like that. That I think what Dan has done a really excellent job of as an individual is that he was open to having me speak about a somewhat controversial topic and that he supported me throughout that event yeah those events look amazing i've never thought of them as being you know like anything other than awesome to be honest (laughs) they look like a cool retreat where you get to hang out and actually spend make real connections with people this is what i see from afar anyway as well as the snowboarding and having your yeah having your mind stretched in various different directions by the people you're you're meeting and hearing from so that's so cool so it led to that and has the and the speaking has then led to work opportunities has it um that's where it's hard right there's that chasm and and gap i think between speaking and between the types of roles that i am looking at right now. And I think that through speaking, I've recognized that it's something that I want to continue to do. And at once, I think finding a role where speaking is an embedded part of it is somewhat challenging. I I would like to work in a role where I can continue to build an experiment from a technical standpoint, because I think that's the part that often gets neglected in my work is because I do speak out so much on ethics and inclusion that becomes highlighted because it's a somewhat it's top of mind I think for our industry right now which is a great thing but then it's almost at the sacrifice of (laughs) also the fact that I really love experimenting with um, HTML and CSS and finding ways to be more experimental from a front-end standpoint to build more exciting and, and accessible design systems that's like the heart of what I do as a designer and so it's striking that balance of finding a role that can allow me to do both is rare there's a couple of opportunities that I'm looking forward to applying for to speaking to folks about that are more in that you know designer or developer advocacy role where you're still able to work through the technology but also to speak about how the technology has an impact on the world at large you mentioned your writing as well. So you're writing and you're speaking and getting known. How much time do you put into that? Like how regular or consistent are you with your writing? I would say that I probably write something in short or long form anywhere between one to four times a week. Right now I'm working on refactoring the blog component of my site or the writing component to help serve up more content because right now it's all static. And so it's not like coherently linked yet. But yeah, I would say that it can be anything as short as writing like a cathartic poem to writing a long form tutorial. But I try to write, I would say two to three times a week is kind of my baseline goal. But I also don't force myself. I'm not a believer in 
that idea of forcing yourself to do things when you aren't inspired to. So I very much seize the opportunities as they arise. Yeah. It's a beautiful website, by the way. You'll have to go to beingfreelance.com and link through to check out what Tatiana has created, which will no doubt evolve as well by the time you get to see it by the sounds of it as well. What I, lo- what I find really interesting about it is there is so much personality in it. And yet I don't think there's a photo of you on it, for example. And yet you really come across in it. It's like, it's genius. Thank you. <laughs> in that respect, it's like, oh, there's no picture. And yet you really get to feel, yeah, your personality shine through. Actually, there was one thing which jumped out as me, you know, in terms of revenue and what have you, is the term sponsor at the top of your website, which is a link to Patreon or Patron page. And I was just wondering what your experience was of doing that, of getting people to be able to support what you do. Yeah, I think this loops back to a bit of what we were talking around before, which is that idea of how do you make things that you want to make and get financially supported for it, right? Like I'd love to completely blow up capitalism and just say that we can just go back to trading things again. That would be lovely. Um, But I don't have the power to do that, unfortunately. So I think this idea of sponsorship is a more accessible way for the work that I want to do to be supported and the work that people find useful and helpful that they can support financially. And a little bit really does go a long way if you think about that idea of $100 a month coming from 10 people, $10 a month. Well, you think about your average subscription service, uh, Hulu, Netflix, you're serving them up about that amount a month to get access to something. I think there's a burden on our industry for folks to create work that's free to everyone, open source. Um, And that's just not financially feasible through and through. So it's like striking that balance of, I always want all my content to be free because there are people that can't afford to pay for it. But for those who can afford to pay for it, giving them that almost moral choice of, okay, well, then if you're using this work and it's valuable to you and you've actually made more money off of my knowledge that you've gained, then here's a way that you can pay that forward. Yeah. So, for example, because one thing I always think about with Patreon is that in order to get, you know, let's say it's $1 just like, I love what you do, $10, and people are like, okay, what am I going to get? And so people from that amount up start to feel the need to create additional content for those members, which is kind of like gatekeepered, I guess. So what do you do? Is it like, given that you want to ultimately give away everything for free so that anybody could see it, do you just release stuff early? Yeah, I think that with the $1 to $10 conundrum, $1 certainly is like, I see you, you know, I I support you and here's a little something. I think that with $10, it certainly is like, I'm your super fan. So I try to give them access early to things. I try to give them maybe more content behind the scenes. And I only started in April, so it's I'm still evolving what it is that I serve up to them. But I think it's about making sure that ultimately, in the end, everything that I'm creating is still accessible 
to everyone. And that's a really tricky balance to strike, right? Because I think you're totally right. If a lot of folks are donating because they want a thing, but I think I've crafted it a bit such that they're not giving more money in order to get access to the thing, if that makes sense. I like that you've also then added a higher ticket value items, which are consultations, it'd be a one-off or a monthly consultation, but it's not there on your website, like a service or a package that you offer. It's part of that Patreon environment. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that how that goes. So that's fairly recent then. Yeah, it is. And I was um, feeling very grateful and blessed for the amount of support I immediately got when I launched it. And I'm excited because you can set goals on Patreon. So I've set some different goals, you know, for being able to create higher ticket items as I reach those monthly goals. And that's really the dream, right? To be able to just be completely self-supported and create content that's meaningful to me and best serves the audience. But I kept it off of my website because I felt like I, I worked many years in marketing and I think that there's always this notion of preventing clicks, but I think that for me, in in terms of who I am, if someone is ready to sponsor, then they're going to go off and and to make that commitment on Patreon. My page is just there to acknowledge the fact that I have one, to make people aware of it, and to thank the people that have already, I keep confusing the words, become patrons. (laughs) Yeah. What does, I guess, like your work day or your work week, month kind of look like for you? Do you work from home? (laughs) I lead the most bohemian work life (laughs) that there is. So I often work from home. I'm also that annoying person that will go to coffee shops and work for set periods of time. I've definitely toyed with the idea of a co-working space, but I haven't really found one that I've loved here. And I'm also trying to to move. And so there's a lot of different factors to consider. But how I structure my week broadly, I structure it based on my mood and my brain power. So because I, I experience depression, I try to maximize my time when I'm not feeling depressed. So on Mondays and Tuesdays, typically, I'll set those aside for admin days. I feel like I'm still recovering from the weekend. So that feeling of accomplishment of getting through my entire inbox or through all of my Twitter DMs or through all of the different modes of social uh, communication that we invite people into, I can end the beginning of the week feeling like, great, I've scheduled things, I've booked things, I've responded to people. Midweek is when I do more of my theoretical conceptual work. So a lot of what I have to do for speaking events is reading. I say have to, like it's a bad thing. I love reading, (laughs) but I end up reading a lot of books. I'll try, especially when it's nice out to like go do that outside and bring a notebook and be detached from my computer for an entire day. And then I would say like mid to late week, that's when I'm feeling technical. So I'll do a lot of like coding experiments during that time, writing technical blog posts and release notes, things that require a bit more detail energy. And then I close my week with maybe more social or strategic things. So I'll take like client meetings during that time to do strategic consulting. I'll take mentorship meetings to talk to folks about career development and such during that time. And then during the weekend, if I'm inspired to work, I'll allow myself, but it's never something that I force myself to do. It really seems you-centered rather than client-centered. Yes. (laughs) I like that. 
Yeah, I think that it's something I would maintain even at a full-time role. And it certainly affects what type of role I'm able to take, right? Like, I'm not sure that a nine to five or nine to nine, as it may be, role where I'm sitting in a desk and forced to have a certain amount of output would lend itself to doing this type of schedule in the same way because things like meetings get in the way. But I realized that that's the genesis of what makes the best work for me. The most inspired work is first focusing on protecting my own mental and physical health. Mm. What do you find like the biggest challenge of being freelance? It's absolutely money and learning how to deal with money, I guess, is how I would summarize it. In what respect? I don't know what how I would describe this, but I guess I see money as being just another construct of our society. And so I don't hold a lot of value in it in so far that I cover my basic needs and expenses. But if I want something and I think it's going to help me, I'm going to buy it. And <laughs> I am laughing because I probably like <laughs> should probably be a bit more responsible, but I feel like it works out for me that I find that money of all things is a renewable resource, which I recognize is coming from a point of privilege because I have my basic needs met on a regular basis. But I think because of that experience I had where I had completely no money and had to build from scratch, I think that's where my attitude about money comes from. Is that like, well, I can make more and ultimately money doesn't control my happiness. Um, It can contribute to it or it can harm it, but it's not the end all factor. Nice. And yet you describe it as a challenge. Yes. I think it's a challenge because we spend a lot of time talking about money. Um, So Bidding is one of those ridiculous arts when you work independently. And I've tried, I think, basically every strategy that's been documented. And at the end of the day, you're just making up an amount of money that you think is worth your time. And time is not renewable. And so I try really hard not to tether the way that I bid work to time. So how do you do it? On value or as to what you need? Yeah, that's where it gets fuzzy, right? Is that I think that there's all these infrastructures to help us value time better, right? Like you can calculate what you'd like to be making hourly after taxes and multiply out what you think it'll cost, maybe multiply it by an annoying client rate or corporate client rate. (laughs) But at the end of the day, I feel like the conversation that I always have is like, I always try to reframe it in the context of how much money is the client willing to spend on it? And what value do they intrinsically think it has? Because ultimately, that dictates what your working relationship looks like. If a client thinks that a website is only worth $5,000, $10,000, etc., and yet at the same time, they're pulling in $6 million, that says to me very clearly, the client doesn't value the intrinsic worth of the website and what potential revenue it has to bring. And so that's almost a way that I use to vet clients is to illustrate to them, okay, How much is this worth to you? And they'll always come back to us, right? Like there's so many hilarious memes about like, what's your budget? What's your, (laughs) what's your rate? What's your budget? What's your rate? But I think that it's really important to see how much the client values this ambiguous thing in terms of dollar amount to their business. 
And then I usually just scale how I work with them based on that amount. If I think that they value my time. Nice. Obviously, it's, it's called being freelance. <laughs> but actually, I like many a time you've used the word independent or working independently. And I noticed straight away on your website about the fact that you describe yourself as an independent designer rather than a freelance designer. Presumably, that was a conscious choice. It was. I think that words matter. And I think that connotation of freelance, for me, I think it works for other people. So this isn't me saying everyone should use independent. But why it works for me is because for me, the context of freelance comes to this idea of it's something that you do between other things and that you aren't necessarily committed to this trajectory that at any given moment you might change your mind and so there's a certain I want to say flakiness that I think can be associated with it and so I consciously choose independent because I was sick of having the conversation of like, oh, you're doing freelance for now, but what would you like to really be doing? Whereas when I feel like I tell people that I'm independent, either they intrinsically understand or they ask me, well, oh, well, what do you mean by that? And then I can have a a conversation with them about what being an independent designer means. Nice. Now, I always do this thing where I ask for three facts about yourself to make two true and one a lie and let me figure out the lie. What have you got for me, Tatiana? The funny thing for me is it's actually hardest for me to come up with the lie. Just too honest. (laughs) I have it. Okay. So thing number one, I was born with teeth. Thing number two, I don't know how to ride a bike. And thing number three, I don't know how to swim. You were born with teeth. You don't know how to ride a bike. And you don't know how to swim. Hmm. Oh, God, this is hard. Okay. Has being born with teeth then gone into like family folklore? I can't answer any questions for you. Isn't that the point of this game? (laughs) I wish I could do four, but I kind of wanted to change... But then that helps you, so I can't now. (laughs) Okay, right. So teeth. uh, No, I do normally ask questions, by the way. But okay, so teeth. Fine, I'll answer. (laughs) So teeth, you don't ride. No, you don't know how to ride a bike. Have you tried to ride a bike? I've tried to ride a bike. Like as a child and then just thought, nah, whatever. Well, so when I was, my dad is of the school of throw them in the deep end. So with a bike, it meant putting me at the top of the biggest possible hill and then sending me down the hill. And that did not end well. And so it scarred you, probably physically as well as mentally. All Ah. of the above, yes. Did he actually throw you in the deep end when it came to the swimming one as well? Are these linked, that phrase? No, he didn't do that one as far as I remember. I think my mom stopped that after the bike incident. (laughs) So have you tried to swim and again, like you've given up or simply that you never had swimming lessons and that was, a, that was it? I almost drowned as a child because of an older child that um, was trying to play with me. 
so that influenced that. I do regularly go in the water. Uh, it's not a very pretty sight. And it's kind of a bad idea, but I'll, I'll do water activities. Like I'll go white water rafting and I'll, I'll go snorkeling and such, but it never ends well. <laughs> it never ends well. Oh, man, I don't know. It was the drowning. You've mentioned nearly drowning as a child. That would almost make me, I don't know, the thing is a child, it might not make a child want to start swimming. And yet I can imagine, but it would put you off ever going near the water again. Snorkeling doesn't snorkel. Snor snor I mean, white water rafting is terrifying. Although I suppose you have a life jacket on and you just bob along when you fall out, don't you? If you fall out. Or you were born with teeth. Some children are born with teeth. That could easily be true. So I reckon the teeth is true and it's either the bike or the swimming. I think you can swim. I can't. Ah! But I didn't know how to ride a bike until I was 16. My very patient high school boyfriend taught me. He was probably the best person to teach me. Just the way he taught worked for my learning style. But it was funny because we would go dirt biking and he was just like, I don't understand how you are able to ride a dirt bike, but not a regular bike. So that was the impetus for him teaching me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. What? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Now, <laughs> if you could tell your younger self one thing about being freelance, what would that be? I think that I would tell my younger self that you have to take advantage of the parts of being freelance to their fullest in order to make the challenges and the hardships worth it. And then also I would tell her to always set aside 40% of everything she makes. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's a good point. Like with your parents, you know being in business and stuff like ha have you had mentors through your sort of independent career I absolutely have and I think that mentorship that's something that's really important to me like I'll be opening up office hours here um, in a couple of weeks but I think that mentorship is something that we don't know how to do enough and, and that we don't do enough in our industry like mentorship and apprenticeship I think that an aspect of seeking mentorship for me is not necessarily seeking people that are just squarely in our industry, but having people that just have a different lived experience than my own who can provide and cast different lights onto the work that I do and the person that I want to become. How do you go about approaching people? I think that we should um, have cards like people do for asking people to be their best men and best person and <laughs> yes. and uh, maids of honor and, and such uh, there should be like will you be my mentor card <laughs> and then we should make a really big deal about them like take them out to dinner no but jokes aside I think that mentorship is really organic for me I, I think it's less formal than that it's just about having someone who you can regularly check in with and who you can go to when you're dealing with something that feels a bit difficult to deal with on your own. And it's kind of like allyship. You know, I think in the work that I do, a lot of people are very gung-ho on the idea of self-identifying as allies. 
And like mentorship, I think it's not about being called a mentor or about calling someone a mentor. It's about showing up every day and doing that thing and less about the title. So I guess all that to say, I don't really like ask someone to be my mentor. We just start to forge a relationship where we exchange those types of concepts and try to do so symbiotically. I think that's a a huge part is that we often see the mentor protege. I refuse to use the word mentee, by the way. I think it it just makes me think of manatee and I can't take it seriously. (laughs) And it's a fake, it's like a fake word. And my, my uppity linguist self is like, I can't do it. So I insist (laughs) on mentee protege or mentor protege, not mentee. But I think that we often think of this as a directional relationship where the mentor is providing everything to the protege. But I think that more importantly, it's more gratifying when there's symbiosis involved that that folks that are maybe newer in their careers or or industries also have a tremendous value to offer to their mentors. Um, So I think it it would be beneficial to start to see those relationships as a bit more of a, a partnership. Nice. Honestly, Tatiana, I could speak to you for ages, but I can't. We we uh we should we should let you go. But thank you so much uh for for joining us. Go to beingfreelance.com like I mentioned there will be links through so that you can find Tatiana online and also check out her website and maybe if you're near her when she's speaking go see her speak as well. While you're there at the website, check out, don't forget, all of the other episodes that we've got. You can also see the videos and the articles. And, of course, come find us in the community. Surround yourself with other freelancers doing what you're doing. Um, There's a link at beingfreelance.com. But, Tatiana, thank you so much. It's been awesome speaking to you. And all the best being freelance. Well, all the best being independent. Oh, thank you, Steve. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you as well. 